Are you seeking to broaden your horizons to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech kundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey, 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 welcome, Future Fit Tribe. I am super excited about today's conversation. Boy, oh boy, um, I saw a comment on, on social media that said, people have lost more weight and burnt more calories by just shaking their heads of what's been happening in this world. It's a bit crazy out there. And um, this is why I really think now that the inauguration has happened and all of this crazy data privacy issues are going around, let's, let's just, uh, just to take the landscape. Apple is deleting apps like crazy. Facebook and Apple is in the feud. Then we've got the Parler app. Then we've got WhatsApp and everybody flocking to Telegram. And the list goes on and on. And all of a sudden, people are waking up that people have access to all their data. And my point of view is if you're on WhatsApp and you're concerned about your WhatsApp data, you should be concerned about Facebook and Instagram because it's actually the same company. And then another thought could possibly be what about Google who knows more about you than any brand does? So I thought it would be good to bring in two highly specialist in their fields. In studio, we've got Ross Sanders, who is a data privacy specialist. And then we have Dr. Jay Fonsale. Um, he's an author. He's a terrifying academic teacher. Um, he rattles the cages. He's very controversial. And his assignments are quite challenging. No, I'm joking. He's an expert in this field. And I think it would be better for you guys to introduce yourselves because I don't want to diminish your reputation because I know you've done, you know, a lot more about yourself than I do. I am not WhatsApp. Okay. So, Jay, over to you. Thanks, Colin. Glad to be here. Well, I think the only way to describe, you know, who I am is that I'm a, a technician and a scientist at heart that woke up one day kind of halfway through my early technical career realizing that oh damn there's a human in the system and that this thing called the human does not behave the way we intended to behave and maybe i should do a track into finding out what all of this fuss is about and that happened probably about 20 something years ago and i can tell you that Still today, I'm attempting to figure out what all this is about. So I'm an academic, you know, in the making. So that means that when you do your PhD and some postdoctoral work, you kind of figure out that you've learned what not to do. Um, I've lost some businesses and built some businesses. And my current focus is on building a behavioral prediction platform that we've got deployed into a number of companies. So I'm a, I'm a realist at heart as well. So my day job is... Uh, not just talking about a lot of these things that I'm obviously deeply passionate about, but also making sure that you can turn it into software assets or something that can be useful 
to somebody. And that's kind of in a nutshell, I guess. Love it. And also you work in Silicon Valley and you're now here back in Cape Town. What is the connection there? Yeah, so my head office is still in Palo Alto. We are essentially situated a few blocks from Stanford, so at the Stanford Research Institute. And we decided as a family during the 2016 period to to move to a region where we can get a lot more involved with the community. And we basically sat down one day and started searching for the next place in the world we're going to be living because we wanted to just get out of you know San Francisco for a while or the region. And we searched for the world's best sunsets. What pops up this suburb that we're living in in Cape Town on a mountain where you can see sunsets. And that's how we got here. So we decided to pack up and move here. And for now, we've been here. This is our, we're just on three years we've been here and don't know what the next steps are. So for now, we're just loving it here. It's an amazing place, great tech center, because everything happens digitally. You know, you kind of connect it all the time. So we've still got a very strong link to, uh, to San Francisco. Yeah. So we've got a tech nomad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Ross, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you talk about shaking your head. I think I've developed new neck muscles from, from it. Um, so I work in the data privacy space and the cybersecurity space and work mostly with software companies in complying with regulations like GDPR, Papia, and the plethora of other regulations that are coming in around the globe and changing on a regular basis. So trying to see how people protect information, how people use information, how people share information, which I think is what we're going to get into a lot of today. Absolutely. I think let's get into the elephants in the room. Um, yesterday was the inauguration and a country divided, a free world divided like we've never seen, the insurrection that happened a while ago, a few weeks ago, and all of these, these you know, um, WhatsApp and Parler and all of that. What is your view on what happened and how people's minds could have been influenced to such an extent to believe such lies? So I think maybe because Jay is a, a familiar with the United States and, and the culture there, maybe you can start off and just maybe take us through what just happened. Well, the way to look at it is that there's a, there's a concept of how you know, humans conglomerate and we spend a fair amount of our, of our, of our lives comparing ourselves to, to other people and attempt to find a geography that, that suits our, you know, our lifestyle and what we think the world should be. And what normally would happen is that you go through life removing all of the pain and the noise and the things that confuse you about you know, what's, what's going to potentially influence your future that's going to be uncomfortable. And you go through rituals and you speak to people and you form these circles that essentially close in on you. And what ends up happening is that, is that you have a very narrow perspective on, on your history and you have even a narrower perspective on your future. So what that means is that you, you will always refer to, there's a classical example where you refer to the university that you're from, the city that you were born in, the family that you're from, the associations that essentially define your identity. And then when you, when you then alter that, that, that image for a person of what's going to happen in the future, you create an enormous amount of discomfort because the change in that setting is what scares you. The fact that 
what if I'm going to arrive at a place where the people that I see don't look like me anymore? They believe in things that I don't believe anymore. And, and that discomfort normally is what most platforms attempt to exploit. So what happens in the, in, in the US is that, is that if you are a conservative, you attempt to form opinions and views that are in conformance with other people that look like you. And if you are a liberal, you attempt to, to then have opposite views just so that you are different. Now, when you have somebody fueling new ideas, like what happens with, you know, conspiracy theories and the like, you have essentially what is known as a commemity. And a commemity is the way that you measure a meme in a community. So we measure the absorption rate of a new really bad idea and how well it's taken up within that community. So all that really needs to happen is that you have to attach a really bad idea to something that they already know or someone in that community already knows and immediately everybody will believe it as if it's fact. And the opposing community will then not have an understanding and that means that they will then object to it and that creates a discourse. So, so the US is, is probably one of the regions in the world where this can happen because you've got so many freedoms around how leaders or people in, you know, influential positions can exert narrative without any regulation controls or any way of actually putting it into a place where, where somebody will have an understanding of what's true and what's not true. So you have spokespeople that represents essentially a story or a person that is then the, the megaphone for that particular idea. So we call that a commemity. And the, and the thing in the US, the distance between these commemities, how these memes flow, are, are, are typically further apart than you have in other parts of the world where, where, where rational thinking and so on is, is defined in a very different way than how you would see it there. There's a great concept called the parasitic mind. And the parasitic mind is the way that, that a virus of thought enters the mind and essentially floods your senses. So, so if you have a thought that, that has got to do with you believe truly in a, in a, in a particular you know, theory, conspiracy or otherwise, and you go to a dinner party or you go to work or you speak to friends or you watch anything on public media or you participate in your social media, you immediately reject it if it doesn't form part of your understanding of the world. And that means that really terrible ideas we find normally get absorbed quicker than ideas that are not so crazy. And we're living in that society today. So the US is just, you know, a classical example of that. Because in my circle, you can probably gather that I'm probably more liberal than what I'm conservative. But in my circle, immediately you had people who were for and against. And everybody wanted to know without directly asking you what your opinions are. Because... <laughs> You know, the, the rallies that you are willing to attend and the communities you're willing to belong to will essentially define your identity and further separate you. Sure. So that's, I think, kind of maybe conceptually how we see it. That is insane, but it is so, so true. And as you said earlier on, the human in the system, and, and we really need to unpack this human in the system. But what I would like to ask you, Ross, is, I mean, Jay has just touched on a very important concept there, freedom, you know? We're losing our freedom 
in this whole system where our data is being manipulated and used against us, not necessarily for us, to serve us. So what is your point of view in terms of what's happening in the world right now in terms of you know, cybersecurity, but also in terms of data privacy and getting legislation in place in order to protect us. Yeah, well, I'm going to perhaps pause on the U.S. side of that and, and take a global yeah. view because the, the U.S., as far as privacy is concerned, is kind of the Wild West, quite literally. But if we look at it globally, we, there's a number of things that you've said there that you can unpack into this data kind of space where data is used against our wishes, where it's used to serve us, where it's used to do uh, various things. And that that kind of, it all ties in together. But let, let's start on the legislation side of it. If we look at the legislation side, a lot of what the privacy legislations are trying to do is give us that control to a degree. So if you look at the GDPR in Europe and you look at Papia that's coming in here, a number of the provisions of those laws work off things like consent, work off things like entering into a contract, uh, an agreement, giving you the actual choice as to how your data works. And that, that's where it's, it's been interesting with what we've seen in WhatsApp, where it's kind of like use it or lose it, in that that is an illusion of choice, really. And if we look at GDPR, there's specifics against that where you can't coerce someone into, well, you're making a decision, but you're making a decision that's not actually a decision. It's accept it or go. Mm. So that's kind of working against us. And with GDPR, with Poppy, with privacy laws, it's kind of giving you back that choice that's actually a choice to use your data. So, so Jay, if you weigh in on, in on this, like let's look at WhatsApp, for example. So I almost feel that the tech companies are in a position whether you do or whether you don't, doomed if you do, doomed if you don't. Um, sorry, I, I didn't say that completely correctly. But anyway, you get my point. <laughs> um, um, here we're all about authenticity. We are humans. We are not robotic. Um, but if we look at WhatsApp, so all of a sudden, WhatsApp's transparent because of what's happened in previous elections and with COVID, all the conspiracy theories. I, I'm just using these as examples because... It's very confusing what's happening right now because the amount of WhatsApp messages I'm getting from so many people and videos telling me what WhatsApp is doing with my data, which is probably not more fact. I think there's a lot of fake news going around that one. But the moment a brand is actually transparent and tells you what they're going to do with your data, everybody flocks and goes to Telegram. The same thing is going to happen there. So well, I just want to try and understand what is your view and what just happened with WhatsApp? Well, maybe the way to look at it is that, you know, if we go back to the reasoning that I followed earlier and you attempt to understand a human in the system and that human's ability to communicate, and that is that when you go to a friend or you participate in a church service or in a sports event and you want to be known to that community that you work in, the first thing that you do is, is that you tell them your name. So you will say that, you know, I'm Jay and I'm, and I love soccer, you know, and, and I like to play this position. Uh, and then after you play the game, <clears throat> excuse me, for the first few times, what happens is that you then get comfortable with some of the people and not so comfortable with some other people. And then you tell them more about yourself. And sometimes you are naturally a person that wants to share some of your experiences and you will then talk to them about it and you will do it in a kind of one-on-one -on -one fashion. And then what happens is at the end of the week, you go and you 
and you go look at the bulletin board at the end of the field and there will be a list of things that's going to happen this weekend and there will be birthday parties and there will be a timeline of activity of what it's what's going to happen and then you go into the front wall and you see a collage of pictures of all of the great players before you and maybe of the team picture and all those bits of evidence essentially represents that that community's view of its existence that's all that the digital world taps into so now think about it there are communication channels that happen when you talk to another individual so that means it's me to you and when i talk to you privately i will typically ask you a question that you this conversation is private do not tell anybody and then we start talking and then you have to typically say end of privacy conversation now let's talk freely again the person receiving the private message then has to interpret and say, okay, fine. Hope I remember the opening tag and the closing tag <laughs> of when I was supposed to and not talking about it. And then so at some point, when you then go into the, into the wall where everybody stands and you've got pictures around, you know, just like Pinterest, and everybody stands around and you then by accident slip out the fact that the secret was there and then the other person gets mad and everybody screens privacy. And then when you go to the bulletin board, one of the people in the room was a, was a junior or maybe a journalist, whatever it was, or somebody interested in writing, creates a little footnote and say that, should this club ever endure people like this? And they'll put it on the timeline. And that is like your Facebook. So, so all that's happened is that the world that we live in, in the, in the physical world, right from when we came out of the caves or the, or the great plains of Africa, and we migrated into societies where we find ourselves in collectives. We have found mechanisms to deal with when we talk to somebody at an individual level and when we deal with people at a collective level. And we, and we decide and we have choice along that journey. So if you had to then consider the WhatsApp scenario, just, well, maybe, sorry, just one last story about that, just to give a context. And it is, it is still fascinating when I, when I'm in South Africa, when I go visit one of my favorite clients and I go to their main building and you arrive at the front desk and there's this big book and the book says, please, and I point at the book and I normally would say to you, write your name, your ID number, your address, your phone number, you know, everything like that. And please sign at the end of this line and nobody screams privacy. You've got the entire person's identity, including their signature on an open book lying in an open office who eventually will be taken, thrown into some warehouse with no security controls and nobody complains about it. Well, it's only so 20 rounds of record. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's actually, I think it's probably, it's, it's probably, a, you know, I don't know, a bottle of whiskey, I understand, from somebody recently, you know, per, per crate, per crate of books. You know, so you can get 20 books you know, with every person's identity signature, and you can go apply at least for 50 loans that you will never pay back illegally and nobody will even find out. Oh my because gosh. they're going to say, oh, check, your data got leaked from your bank. He said, no, it got leaked from the thousand other sources around you that you never paid attention to. So let's get back to the WhatsApp scenario. So, so now what happens is that, is that when you decide to then communicate with another person one-on-one, -on -one, you could just decide to use your standard text channel. So you could go to your favorite operator, and you can use a GSM-based short message service that's been around for a fairly long time, and you can just go and text somebody. What you don't know is that that text goes through a switch, 
in your telecommunications company. It has to translate it. It compresses it. It's got complete line of sight of every bit of detail that sits inside it. And it arrives at its destination. Or what you could do is you could then decide to do it in a channel that is a lot cheaper. And that means that you use a data rather than per message. You want to have short messages where you can just say lol and, you know, all those kind of things that we've learned to do in our emoticon world. And short circuit all of the verbose text that we normally used to write into something short so that you pay less because you only pay for the data to deliver the message to the end person. So that means that if you had to look at it like that, at its core, all that the technologies are doing are enabling people to communicate and to be able to do these things in a multitude of different fashions. Mm. The challenge is this. If I have invested a billion dollars in infrastructure and in R&D people, and I've employed the world's best computational social scientists, best software engineers, and all of the UI design that I need and everything that I need to put in place to build a business. The purpose of being in business, if you are incorporated, is to make a profit. Mm. That means that you will find whatever means possible to do upselling and cross-selling and do whatever you can to the customer base that you have acquired. And because you have given your product as a platform to be consumed as a service means that the person participating in the platform for free, surely they know that they have to at some point contribute for that mm -hmm. business to make five, six or $10 billion in profit every year. Surely they know that they are in engaging in conversations and engaging in activities that will get them, you know, to, to part with something that is of value to the enterprise receiving something from them. Mm. And that's the thing that fla that's quite, I mean, it's flabbergasting, isn't it? It's like, it's confusing that, that people truly believe that they're going to get stuff entirely for free, unless it's government funded. That was done through your taxes. It's paid for anyway. When you live in a country and you drive on a road that's free, you paid for it. You know what I mean? It's not, it, 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 I mean, there is no such thing. It is, you know, it is, it is confusing that people believe that. But if you go back to the parasitic mind, people believe it. They believe stuff must be free. You know, I want to get everything for free. And then you tell your friends that it must be for free. And then when somebody then says, but hang on, we're going to make more money from you crowd. Then they go, no, you can't do that. And then they yeah. all cry foul. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bit amused by this entire exercise, to be honest. It is very fascinating. But listen, just before I move over to Ross, I went to this fancy new hotel in Schlange, um, in Durban, um, a while ago. It was actually last year. And it's the first time, like, going into a hotel where I can only access the hotel, um, the gates open with biometrics, the, the door opens with biometrics. I was like, who owns this data? Who, <laughs> who? This yeah. is like a new company that's just opened. Biometric data, in my view, is probably the worst data. And facial recognition, it really concerns me. Yes, it's good to have it there because of the insurrection. Geez, like if we didn't have it, you know, it would have been a problem. So it, it serves a purpose. But at the same time, for us ordinary human beings, it also has a problem. You should ask him for the information policy. And if they don't give it to you, don't participate. Yeah, So when I go true. to a security complex, I say to somebody, you cannot read my driver's license. Because I've got my U.S. driver's license. I say, you're not going to scan this thing. I don't give you the permission to, to, to access my data. 
Then they say, you cannot access this facility. Then I say, I'll see you next time. And then, Did you so really do that? I do it. I did it a few days ago. I went, to a, I went to a facility. I phoned the owner of the people we visit. They phoned back the security. They said, please let him in and they let me in anyway. Pretty efficient, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> so um, all that you have to do is that you have to take a stance. But the problem is people don't. Ah. People just say, oh, no, you can have it. You can have my face. You can have my biometric. I'll give you all my data. Nobody give pushback. Oh. But yet, when it comes to their bank or to WhatsApp, then they go, oh, no, you're not allowed. Yeah. But, the, but that, I bet you that that scanning at the hotel is on somebody's computer under a desk somewhere without any security. And some spreadsheets. <laughs> you know, this is the yeah. thing. But I mean, Ross, let's talk about this because you've been all over the radio stations really talking and weighing in on, on what's happening with, oh, it almost rhymes, what's happening with WhatsApp. <laughs> okay, what's up? Okay, so, so, so let's talk about this for a moment. What is your views on the T's and C's? Um, and what should we think about this new change? So I, I've got some fairly strong opinions on it. And I'm going to tie into what Jay has said now as well, uh, just with the data that's out there and the trade-off, because it is always a trade-off between your convenience and your privacy if you're using something that's a free service. If you want to not have that, then you can go and purchase a $20 million secure communication system that, that's in use, but you have a trade-off. And it's, it's that trade-off of value. And there's a lot that ties into this WhatsApp policy that you have to unpack. Because now you're dealing with, you've got the terms and conditions, and I'm very glad you pointed out, what do I make of reading the terms and conditions? Mm. I guarantee you that a lot of people complaining about these terms and conditions have not read the terms and conditions. It ties into what Jay said in the first place as well, where you have this almost group think, and you have that fear. And the second you've got fear, you're not going to take anything in as a new learning, as a understanding or anything like that, because you're scared of it. It's the way it's the way we learn. You have to be calm to learn something and take it in. Thanks so, for that tip. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you have these, you have this reliance on the media that you read yourself. And, and I mean, you can tie this kind of thing back into parlor and the insurrection and things like that, where, where you have your choice of media that you're going to follow. Now you have a media outlet that will complain about the WhatsApp terms and conditions that, oh, no, they're sharing our information with everyone. And no one reads the, the terms and conditions. They read the news article. So it becomes a very, very dangerous thing there. My view on the terms and conditions is they are, A, relatively fair. I say relatively fair because there are certain things in there that is the illusion of choice and not giving you the choice. But it's not doing anything that Facebook hasn't been doing for a long, long time. Exactly. And if you have Instagram installed, you have Facebook installed, you've, you've given Facebook more of this than you're even giving to WhatsApp now. And quite frankly, the, the consent came through in 2016 already. There was a, a consent where you could opt out of sharing with Facebook. And you can go check that on WhatsApp now. You can go download your information from settings and it'll tell you when you opted out, did you opt out, They've just enforced that now and become open and clear with it. How they did that open and clear was rather bad from a PR point of view. But I don't think it's the end of the world with this privacy policy that everyone's making it out to be. And people also assume privacy is always consent. Privacy is not always consent. Consent is, is the least thing you want to rely on. Privacy is also contract. I want to use your services, therefore I am going to give up certain parts of privacy. What WhatsApp has been fantastic about 
is people are now finally becoming aware of this fact that there's that trade-off and they should probably be reading the terms and conditions. And do I want to enter this contract? That is me handing over information. It reminds me of that song of We Don't Need No Education, Pink Floyd. Have you ever watched that video <laughs> where like everybody goes into yeah. a sausage and gets like, into the sausage <laughs> machine? It's like almost like I'm envisioning that with us. I think we've blindly walked into this thing, not questioning any, anything and just like exactly also to Jay's point and to your point, it's like we just accepted this, this thing. I mean, I read an article a while ago where they said that they believe the future um, of trading is going to be about our data. They're going to trade with our data. Like, I, I mean, that freaks the crap out of me. Like, ooh. And, and, and the thing is, is like, if you really want to, um, they say people within three seconds, they accept terms and conditions, which means they haven't re- read it. But there was somebody, I can't remember or recall their name, that said, if you want to get somebody to accept something, hide boring information into this massive document and people will just accept <laughs> it. So that's exactly what happened here. It's, it's the beautiful thing of where privacy is going now because part of the things on GDPR and Poppy means and, and even thinking to the Consumer Protection Act in South Africa is you need to actually start putting things in plain English. Yeah. And we're seeing a movement just in the last four years from the European Directive, GDPR, Poppy, uh, that is moving in the direction of plain English privacy policies. This is what we take from you and we do this with it. Not party A agrees to party B consuming this, blah, blah, blah. So it's changing. Yeah, that's my favorite. If I could maybe just (laughs) tag on to that. These are my favorite statements. And and I just want to quote two privacy contracts that you basically engage with today. So let's read the WhatsApp one just for a moment to kind of played to Russ's uh, comment that I think is exactly what they've been trying to do. So it basically says on WhatsApp, your messages are yours and we can't read them. Fact. We think it's fact. (laughs) We put privacy, end-to-end encryption, and other security features into WhatsApp. We don't store your messages once they've been delivered. When they are end-to-end encrypted, we and third parties can't read them. Right? So that's pretty deliberate. Now let's read another favorite organization's privacy agreement called Microsoft Corporation. Microsoft collects data from you through your interactions with you and through our products. You provide some of this data directly, and we get some of it by collecting data about your interactions, use, and experiences with our products. The data we collect depends on the context of your interactions with Microsoft and the choices you make, including your privacy settings and the products and features you use. We also obtain data about you from third parties. If you represent an organization, we collect data about that. And it carries on. And it then carries on and on. It says your private data. We use your private data for our own exploitative purposes to sell your products. And it carries on and on and on, telling you what it's going to do with it. And nobody cries foul. People (laughs) use Microsoft Teams and the enterprises. And yet, the one from WhatsApp says very clearly, Your messages are yours and we can't read them. Microsoft says, we read everything, including your privacy settings. Boom. You see, (laughs) I'm listen. I mean, like we just use Microsoft (laughs) because it just makes life easier. And also your clients and and you and everybody works with it. Although there is other, other ways, but there's always issues when you do public speaking, especially when we had that public speaking world. But something, I don't know where, but something started concerning me about the promotions that I started getting based on a proposal that I've just sent to a client. And then I'm like, 
how it is the most oddest proposal that I've just sent on the most oddest topic. How on earth did Microsoft know to, to send that to me? The second thing is that I'm deeply concerned about, I close my camera when I work during the day um, because I, I consult to, to quite a few clients and I work on with different clients and I have different hours allocated, but I am not happy with the fact that they look at the camera and see if you're in front of the camera and how they're micromanaging. And I mean, like, it's not okay, but yet, as you say, you signed up to this and um, it is yeah. what it is. You also need to be aware of, of the content of data and then the metadata surrounding it. So that's also, I think, where there's, there's a lot of difference in what they process. You know, devil's advocate, even the organizations that don't have end-to-end encryption and they, they have the ability to decrypt your messages or, or see things. Do they need to? Do they want to? Are they going to? Um, a lot of these services, if you think about just the storage required to store this kind of information, it is actually not financially viable to store it. it if you look at Parler now that AWS has given them the boot, they've put out a spec. I, I haven't verified that this is actually the thing, but it, the spec to host the data is just... <laughs> astronomical to be out there just from the data of it so you've got to look at, at whether it is it's it's the 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 impact and the likelihood what is the likelihood of them looking at your information uh, and there's also privacy features being built in now and it, it talks to that privacy policy from microsoft saying it depends on your privacy selections as well mm, mm. because chances are your your camera that you're looking at it may not be the fact that someone is watching. Well, I, I'm pretty darn sure it's not someone sitting there watching you sitting in front of your machine. It might just de- be detecting your presence with infrared cameras, which is exactly what your iPhone is going to do when you stare at it to unlock it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. What if I'm picking my nose? No, I'm joking. It'll see that too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just jesting. But 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 it's so so true and. You know, what, what I also would like to, to try and understand. Um, so Apple is moving into this whole new direction. I think Apple has started seeing, Hey, this privacy thing. So they're just starting to delete apps off their place, uh, you know, off the iTunes accounts and they're just deleting it. And this is where this whole feud with Facebook and, and Apple happened. And they want to start protecting people because from themselves, I think from, and their data privacy. What's your views on that, Jay? If you think of the, the concept of an app store, essentially is, is an ecosystem of technology providers that share in the economic benefit of a customer base that is essentially nurtured by Apple. So it's a, so it's really a, a reciprocal, you know, kind of, you know, financial model that is playing out. So, so what Apple has been, I guess, more careful on rather than if we look at the, the Google scenario is that Making sure that the that the apps that go onto the store are technically working are not illegally siphoning off data behind the scenes that will get them into a into a legal dwang. So mm-hmm. so what they've made sure is that their terms of reference is very very specific. And if you go look at the terms of reference as a developer that 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 collects data behind the scenes or that that allows in-app purchases that you would see that a special notice will appear in the app store if you have an in-app purchase because Apple has to approve the payments channel and the legalities that are 
in existence, including the tax authorities. So I don't know if you've ever been through the process of applying at an app store to be a technical provider. What happens is that, is that as a technical company, if you look at like the parlor scenario or any one of those kind of apps that are you know, inflicting violence or are the, the reason you know, that people will behave in a certain way or selling illegal content, whatever it might be, is that the, the institution that, that, that vouches for the tech has to be onboarded into the Apple institution. Mm. So there's a big office in, in Cupertino and kind of they scattered all over the world today that, that you go through a business application like you would do as any kind of supplier would go through. And it would want to know like in the US, if you don't have an EIN number in a company, that basically this means that you've got you know, a registration with the IRS and so on or in South Africa, it must make, you must have a tax clearance or wherever you're going to want to supply technology from. It wants to know that there's a legal entity on the other end that, that can be held accountable if something goes wrong. And that process essentially is to, is to manage the risk of the ecosystem so that you don't want to show bias, you know, one over another. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that you really, really want to make sure that the vulnerable is protected. And yeah. I think that is the one thing that personally to me as a father of a couple of girls is the biggest concern for me. And that is that, that yes, you want to let them loose and you want to make sure that the community that they participate in has at least vetted or has a mechanism to remove the people that are exploiting the ones that cannot look after themselves mm. or don't know yet how to protect themselves. And I think that's the thing that creates the biggest concern. And I think that's also probably going to tie into, into Ross's world because we're relying as technology implementation people and as people who build you know, algorithms to, to we rely on the regulation world to, to, to catch some of that so that you don't have just this free for all, you know, kind of going after everybody. So I think that the Apple scenario of kicking people off the app store is absolutely correct to do. Mm, and that's why you see that the consequence is that, is that Parler and Telegram both are run by Russians now. So that means the Parler infrastructure is run by, the, by a Russian community. And I mean, I do a lot of work, yes, and my developing team, part of it sits in, sits in Russia. But, I hope but you, you do know good that... things in Russia. <laughs> yeah, so, listen, the I like we're not airing this. <laughs> you know, this. Exactly. But the thing is that, you know, my Russian developers, I could tell you now, are absolutely the best that the world can afford. And, it's, and there's nobody that can compete with them. So that means that, that the tech teams that normally run these things and that, and that run the infrastructure are often separated from the entity that represents the institution. Mm. And that and that is partly the issue. You'll see that 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 if we get back to like Microsoft buying GitHub, was to make sure that that the whole Git community stays safe and that the software world and so on, you know, has got a means to have growth. And the reason why the Microsoft license agreement or you know security agreements have never bothered you, is because the institution is aiming all of its future economic success on the success of the enterprises that they serve. Where a lot of the other technologies, like you think of the parlor or the WhatsApps or Facebook, relies on the discourse in society to drive its future revenue growth. So that means Facebook cannot kick off a community that generate large amounts of revenue, even if they are outspoken or they've done the wrong thing or that they are doing talk about illegal stuff because it's revenue. Where in the Microsoft world or the enterprise software world, you don't have that problem typically. Because most large enterprises want to comply. They want to do the right thing for longer periods of time. And that, I think, is often not visible, is that if you create an interaction platform that is purely going to be to drive violence, then I think that 
as Apple, you've got the right to kick them off if they break your terms of service because you didn't have to go to another community. Even though there is a debate that you're driving the people underground, the point is though is that if you know it's illegal what you're doing, then don't do it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, that's kind of yeah. the overriding debate, isn't it? Yeah, it's so true. And, and Ross, I mean, like, how are we doing on tech ethics and regulations? Because from my perspective, it just feels like the capitalism, people just get away with murder. They can just do what they do. There's nobody actually regulating. So again, I'll, I will go with US being kind of the <laughs> wild west, but the, the, the FTC is actually taking on Facebook. And I think there, there are a number, like a staggering number of states in the US that are challenging Facebook now mm. Uh, mm. as to these mergers and things like that because of the sheer data they're going to have. And from a regulatory point of view, this is why Facebook has also got into so much trouble in Europe. I mean, Facebook is helping form European law now. In August, there was a case, the Schrems case, Schrems 2, and there's Schrems 3 coming now, I'm sure, when the challenge comes through. But that is all about data being transferred into the US and being able to be used, where legislation and European legislators are now saying, well, no, you, you can't. If it's a European resident, then no. And Facebook has lost that now. So, I mean, for a couple of weeks, all transfers halted between like basically Europe and, and the US because suddenly the mechanisms that were being used as legal mechanisms were deemed bad by the court. So it was stopped. And we're seeing the same in Puppy now. So Puppy, most privacy regulations say that if you're going to transfer data outside of the country that you're living in, that country must have equivalent privacy laws. The US doesn't. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And the South African regulator is already approaching Facebook. They, they approached them last week, I think, to find out what's going on. Because technically, under Poppy, there's going to be challenges using Facebook uh, going forward for after the 1st of July. So we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Oh, but boy, oh, boy. Regulation is definitely coming in. And speaking to Jay's point as well, when you have privacy regulation, it's not just one entity that they're looking at. So if you take the Apple, you take the Facebook and all of that, Apple will be held responsible for what other people using their services can do because there's other parties in the chain. Mm. So the privacy legislation will look at Apple as perhaps the responsible party or the controller. And then it'll also look at the processes or operators and who's looking at that data. And everyone has a liability in that. So legislation is really coming in. And I'm, I'm very fond of privacy re regulation because it's giving you a bit of that privacy back. Thank goodness. My anxiety levels is going up here. I'm not going to be able to study after this. Um, sorry. You know, what no. common, <laughs> you, know what, you know what complicates it even further is that the entire world is essentially plumbed by something that you cannot see. There's a, there's a non-visual layer, an application programming interface layer that, that allows you to do deep app linking that, that creates a great experience for the person using the digital service, but at the same time relies on a constant supply of reliable information about the individual. So that means that if you had to go and search for a certain phrase on Google and you are pretty well organized and you've got your SEO, your search engine optimization set in the right kind of level of what you would need to be known in the world, all that you do is you then tell the world exactly what you're doing, where you're doing it, and how you're doing it. That's why the integration that is non-visual has got a much bigger challenge, I think, in a in a pro-regulation versus non-regulated world. And that's what I think a lot of the tech people are 
are worried about because the the Facebook scenario that played out with with you know Cambridge Analytica and and the fact that a partner to a third party used data without consent is that most of these data usage and data consent agreements do not span an entire ecosystem. It spans an immediate provider. So that if that provider outsources some of the work to be done to a second or third tier party, there's very little controls that are that are in place. I think anywhere in the world really for that. So 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 the thing is that the experience, and it goes back to our conversation earlier, that the experience and the trade-off between that and privacy is a massive debate because you cannot make things seamless. You cannot go and say that I search for my Mauritius holiday on Google and then not get pictures about Mauritius in my Pinterest, you know, because if I, if I do get it, I know it's listening. And if I don't get it, I feel, you know, disgruntled. Mm. So where do you draw the line? You know, and so there's, so there's a fine line there that's that complicated. And, and we as human beings, all we look, want in life is convenience. Our lives have just become busier and busier now with the digital migration. And we all, we're like the zombies of the apocalypse. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we literally just, um, online all the time. And I think there's also an element of screen fatigue and you just want convenience. Like when I'm looking for something, I want the answer right now and we want it immediately. We don't have time to wait. Um, which is also bringing a challenge for the corporate world because they need to also, you know, they rely on tech companies to be regulated and to, you know, if Facebook is allowing this, it must be allowed. Like, you know, nobody's challenging these being big companies and they're, they're completely in control. What does bother me quite a bit, and I had a, a guest um, the week before, Phil Barden, who specializes in neuroscience and behavioral economics. He wrote the book Decoded, which is one of my favorite books. It's like my marketing Bible. And um, it's just a system one and systems two thinking. And we were just talking about what happened with Cambridge Analytica. And he, and he said, you know, there's a big idea that, you know, they use behavioral economics and neuroscience to, to manipulate. And actually they didn't. And there's apparently a lot of cited um, information, um, academic papers around that. I haven't dived into it, but it's just very <laughs> interesting to to understand that you know this is an issue because there has been after the the pandemic especially there was a report on we are social i can't remember the exact stats but i do believe that 70 percent of south africans don't trust corporates and what they're doing to their data now if you think about that if i'm using social media or i am doing google ads and and my and an ad appears like you are pregnant you know, that whole story about you are pregnant um, by just tracking your data. And it appears when I'm on, on a certain site. When brands appear on the wrong sites and maybe are too on par, they're like, well, why would they and how would they know that this is happening in my life? That destroys trust. Trust is the currency of the 21st century. How you are manipulating or I can say manipulating or however you are putting yourself out digitally into the world. If you're not doing it ethically and correctly, the challenge exists that it doesn't matter where you're advertising. It's not associated with a platform. It's associated with the brand. Come can I challenge that? Yes, please do. That's what we're here for. A debate. <laughs> I'm just I, think you don't, I think in real terms, you don't give a damn if it was acquired ethically or not when it benefits you. Mm, it's true. <laughs> so and what happens is this, and let me tell you the thing with the Cambridge Analytica, and it's worth looking into this, because Cambridge Analytica was built by computational social scientists. 
-hmm. not by neuroscientists, not by behavioral economics, because those are disciplines who've got no idea truly how social systems work. Because a neuroscientist, and if you think of all of what happens in neuroleadership or neuro-related thinking, it's a study of the individual. It does not study the collective. And then if you look at behavioral economics, studies the economics of a collective. Computational social science studies the nature of human beings within its social setting. That if you had to think about just the fundamental statement, no humans have free will, period. Mm. If you had to prove it across three different disciplines, you'll get entirely different answers. But the social scientist is the only one that will truly know the slight differences between you and somebody else based on the behaviors of the people around you. Because what happens if you have to decide one morning when you wake up, today is the good day to stop breathing. I'm done with this breathing thing. I've got the free will. Or today is a good day. I'm not wearing clothes ever again. I'm finished. Or today is a good day to stop eating. It costs too much money. Or today is a good day to stop looking at what happens outside or to leave the house or to earn income or to drive my car or to pay for fuel or any other action you take in your life. You find immediately that every one of the generic things that behavioral economists track or that neuroscientists track disappear. And it's only the computational social scientists that will tell you the true separation, the deltas between two collectives of behaviors. And I think that's the challenge, though, is that is that we don't have an understanding of that in the public domain. So, yes, mm-hmm. there are big communities. Like, I mean, I'm a, promoting my own profession, essentially, computational social science. But like in anything, you've got two sides to the coin. Mm-hmm. The one side of the coin says that if I'm a, if I'm a hunter, and listen, let's talk about hunting. That's a bad thing. If I'm a... Please But I mean, it, it, there's this theory in the States, and it's, and it's, all, my, it's all my conservative friends say to me, if I'm a gun, doesn't mean I'm going to go and kill somebody. You know what I mean? So that doesn't mean I'm going to take the gun away from you. And it's the same thing what happens with, with social media or with anything that's got to do with when I've got your data. It doesn't mean I'm going to use it, you know, for negative and for non-practical purposes to, to service you better. Mm. So I just think that that discussion of, of the role of marketing, and if you think of even the days before social media, maybe I did marketing in the days before we did social media, we are still had to learn the psychology of decision-making. The only difference was, was that the decision-making criteria and how I collected the data was done the hard way. Mm-hmm. Because I had to go and ask somebody, really hope that they don't lie to me. Where today, I can collect your data and you cannot lie. You cannot tell me, I did not go buy that alcohol. I did not go over the speed limit. <laughs> I never went to that place. I never went to that restaurant because I've got the transaction. I know exactly where you were. And because humans forget, we've got very short memories, means that the data world is so much more precise and accurate. Where in the historical world of marketing, we were never precise or accurate. We were only relying on propaganda and manipulation. Mm. And and I think that's the trade-off, isn't it? That's that's where the big dichotomy lie yeah i think you've hit it so beautifully there in in just with the whole thing of like is my phone listening to me and and <laughs> listening to everything i've said people do have short memories and, and you, you may have searched something at some point along those lines and it, it's showing up oh it's listening to you. probably not listening to you it's it's probably been deduced yeah that that or, or there's a reasonable possibility that that's going to be what you're looking at yeah yeah, there's a graph that's common. You know what that is? Exactly that example. If you go search for, it's basically the page rank algorithm 
that looks for betweenness and closeness centralities. It then finds the boundary spanner and it brings the boundary spanner into the closeness to see what the relationship is. And it knows exactly what you've said without ever knowing what you've said. It's crazy. It's a meta, but it's they, meta solution. But they couldn't freaking resolve it for Oscar Pistorius's case. Okay. Like, they couldn't find his data on his WhatsApp where they could have unencrypted it, that, right? That, no, no, that's an interesting thing. That's a very, very interesting point about WhatsApp uh, in that with them saying that they've got end-to-end -end encryption and they don't store your data, they don't. One, once that message is delivered, it's between your device and the other device. Yes. And when they, when they go and get the data for any sort of criminal investigation and things like that, chances are they actually approach Apple and Google to get your backups of WhatsApp from your iCloud backups because the messages don't exist anymore. Yeah, that's a great point to make. I was actually going to raise it earlier, uh, Ross, because it, if you look at it, it's only Microsoft that says that electronic discovery, e-discovery is the process of identifying electronic information that can be evidence in legal cases. They're the only one that deliberately state that the reason why it's done like this, why we collect the data, so that it can be used for criminal investigations and cases, including Office 365, where the WhatsApp channel does not do it. And that's why you find that the, that the positioning between the enterprise and the responsible institution that is attempting to control its ecosystem against the individual tiny technology who wants to make revenue through other means mm. is where I think a lot of this fight is playing out on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, so I want to kind of close this off because, you know, from, from my perspective, working in, in, in the marketing space, I'm, I'm starting to witness, you know, a lot of um, corporates that are trying to, to take their, their businesses and elevate it and obviously being more tech informed. And there's so much biases and toxic cultures. I don't think I have seen one company that operates, at the moment it's over 30 people. It's toxic. I think even less. And what concerns me is this, this biases that we have as human beings and how we programming technology, which is just accelerating the biases that we have and actually creating a super more depressing world that we're living in. What is your views on this? Uh, shall I climb in there first? I, I mean, I think I'm going to jump in perhaps from a semi-political point of view on, on that as well. And, and, Talk from a, a company culture kind of thing. I respectfully disagree on the 30 people thing. I've, I work with some companies that are phenomenal culture-wise mm. and they're, they're large and multinational. But there are biases that come into data and there are biases that come into companies and there's biases behind who manage that data. And I think that's where my concerns come in. And, and I mean, politically, I'm one of those horrible things. I'm a, I'm a moderate in the middle. And I think there's danger on both sides of this between right and left and, and, and all of that. And I think that's where some of my concerns come in with the amount of data that, for example, a Facebook is taking. And it more comes into the biases as to what comes into those algorithms. And I, I wonder if Jay is going to talk more on that in, in a moment or, or can talk to it. But if you look at who controls those algorithms, that's where I get a bit of a, of a nervousness. If there's groups looking at things i'm a bit more comfortable in that there are other points of view that can change that bias when there's singular people like in terms of facebook and the control that mike that mark zuckerberg has in the company and the algorithms it's it's unprecedented the control he has at that granular level that's when i get uncomfortable with it so i think there are biases 
But I think they can get you can get around them if you manage them effectively and you look out for them effectively. Mm. Jay? Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's such a complex topic. So I can give you a topic that we th really think about from a computational social science point of view. We see it in two ways. There's there are biases when humans engage with other humans, and that's kind of the blink scenario. That means that you make and you form an opinion about a person within the first few seconds of meeting them. And then there are second kinds of biases, and those are the ones that, that are algorithmic or system determined that is typically driven by data and decision-making that happens behind the scenes. So now let's just think about some of a hierarchy of, of biases that, that we typically think about. The number one bias in the world is age. So that means that if you are old and if you are young, the world will discriminate against you. So it doesn't matter why you look at it. People will think when you're old, you've done it, you can't do it anymore, whatever it is. And if you're too young, you know too little. And in some way in the mushy middle, you find the people who control the world. And that means that you are probably in your 30s, going to your 40s. You, you know, supposed to be, if you think of in a business world, where you're at the height of your energy. That's the number one. The second one is that where you're from. So that means that if you are from a, from, from a particular geography that somebody does not relate to or they don't agree with or they don't like, immediately they will discriminate against you. The next one is education. People would want to know that if you're a doctor and you're in a community of doctors and you meet somebody who's done fine arts, you know, you're not going to be able to understand each other. You speak a different language. You, you immediately will kind of have something against the artist or the artist will have something against the lawyer or against the doctor. And they are even in, in, in kind of generic public conversation, the way that we sometimes talk about some of these professions. Like, you know, if you look at actuaries or any of these other uh, disciplines, you immediately will have, you know, different kind of bias against that. You then have religion. Because as soon as you have religion, you have got a close community truly believing a certain story it means that it won't let anything outside of that community in. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental bias. It means that you, you immediately discriminate of those who don't believe your story. Then you have the way that you speak, your accent. And that's why I find what's interesting with my accent. I've got a kind of a convoluted kind of South African come whatever other accent. But if you had, if you could not speak well, I mean, I've got a friend from South America when he is the most PhD mathem mathematician whose English is, is really, really not so good. <laughs> and I know it used to be at conferences. People won't even want to talk to me. You don't think somebody is clever if they can't speak properly. So that means that it's, it's, it's an immediately a bias that, that, and that transcends all kinds of backgrounds or race or your location where you're from. Nobody cares. If you can't speak immediately, they will kind of go, go, go against you. And then you've got the other two big elephants in the room. And the one is, the one is gender and the one is race. Mm. And what you find, though, is that when you take that entire hierarchy, you typically will see that somebody from one race that has got a bias against a person in another race is because of the other ones above. Not necessarily. So if you immediately meet somebody from a different race that speaks like you, thinks like you, attends the same sports events, you know, is the same age as you, live in the same suburb as you, immediately that bias will disappear. And that's what complicates it. So we see that in the data. The first thing we do is to understand these kind of relationships and then to see what you then do with that. So that means that, that mostly we find algorithms don't have programmed bias. It's the data mm. that you use to determine what the algorithm is going to produce as an outcome that, is do that don't have the right distribution. So that's why at the end of the day, it becomes a machine learning and a data science problem. Because if I want to pitch a product to, to females that's going to provide them with female hair products, how many males should be in my female hair product data set? Mm. 
You know what I mean? So that means that I want a biased female data set. Now what I want to do is I want to separate the female data set between old females that have got gray hairs or that are old with frail hair and young females with tough hair or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how you would classify Ooh, are this. we going to trace them out? Then think about it. That means that the person who uses the data then to decide on a certain target typically will induce the bias to yeah. hit its target. If you do a generic piece of analytic and you want to make a generic statistical statement about a society, then you better make sure, and this is the thing that I think that we're relying again on regulation and people to make sure that people do this. Mm. They have to make sure that distribution is representative. Yeah. And I think that complicates it because in the world that we work in mostly, we work with highly biased data sets because they hit one target. And the target creates the bias that you want. If there's a sub-bias, like the hierarchy I gave you earlier, that causes an unintended consequence that will hurt somebody, then again, you have to stand back and check that your distribution is right so that your algorithm eventually will be able to make the decisions that it needs to make. There's a great case, I'm not going to talk about it now, but it's a great case in the U.S. around racial profiling that was done. And then the results of those were completely skewedly sent to all of the law enforcement agencies across the U.S. And it created an entire subculture that's lasted about 10 years now because of a mathematical problem, because nobody checked the distribution properly. So, so, so yes, I think it's a, it's a tough topic, but it's definitely worth ongoing conversation. Yeah. In short, is there any way of solving this, this problem for companies to consider? Well, I can quickly maybe go first. And I think that, <laughs> you know, you have to have your ethical radar that is a humanistic thing that you have to think about because at the moment the regulation is still very loose. Mm. You know, Kay Furthright is a lady who's part of the World Economic Forum who's been driving the whole ethics community, you know, and they've been doing some amazing work around creating like a, like a straw person framework that you can work from. See, I was unbiased there. Um, so created a, <laughs> a straw person framework so you can kind of slot in all of your ethical considerations and then decide if it's worth going to market with it. But the idea is that every case should be considered. So I think companies are attending to it. Is enough being done? Probably not. So we have to think about it. I think from a regulation point of view, it, you've got to strike a balance as well as to what do you over-regulate as to giving people the freedom and technology the freedom to move as well. Because if you take a – regulation doesn't regulate that I as a company have to have these specific things in. And if it did, it would be certain businesses wouldn't be able to comply and they'd have to shut. There's no, it wouldn't be case by case, which is a problem. And I think you have to have sort of that kind of flexibility and interpretation of the law to be able to do that. Uh, but the law is catching up on data. So I would say you're going to see that ethics tying in with regulation. And I think we are seeing it with regulation coming in everywhere. And I think the more we see regulation coming in, perhaps in the States for the, with the new administration, we might see federal law then it's going to be a different world that we're going to live in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. Um, I think I think the, the, the just from from my perspective, I had a – so I, st I studied at Henley Business School, Ross. I don't know if you've seen uh, – yeah, I studied at Henley Business School. I'm doing my PG dip and I'm going through the self-mastery process and I actually met with my – and you know what's okay to say in this day and age? I spoke to my psychologist about the foundings of some of, – of, some deeply concerning things about my value system 
um, that was contradicting and I, and I wanted to understand that. And then like for me, authenticity and honesty and transparency, those things are, are exceptionally important to me. And then he said to me, but Carmen, you're in marketing. <laughs> And <laughs> see, now I'm Chomsky Day. You're going to have to go. That's, I am. Um, no, St. Patrick's Day. Sorry. <laughs> I need a St. Patrick's Day right now in my life. Like, seriously. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, but I mean, that was a deeply thought provoking moment for me. And I still need to evaluate that because I'm very passionate about marketing. But I, but I do feel I'm trapped into this world of what's around my my ecosystem around me is not ethical and i need this ecosystem to make the world happen it's making me cringe and it keeps me up at night and i don't know what the answer is yet but i will soon find out and and let my gut and my intuition lead me down the right path i just want to thank you guys for taking the time to to talk about this and i love the fact that we could be in conversation debate and just be robust and, and honest and real and have a good conversation. So, um, Jay, from, from my side, thank you so much. Um, it was absolutely awesome having you here. And hopefully we can maybe put another session together in the future. Um, there's a lot of movements and conversations already happening um, that we could maybe tap into. And, Ross, thank you once again for, for joining. Absolute um, pleasure. It was just so much fun. So I just want to say bye-bye now. Bye. Cheers. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Booyah Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C, and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.